Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Stacy Siegel, the executive director of the Seattle Architecture Foundation, is here today. The mission of the foundation is to connect people to the architecture, design, and history of Seattle. One of the ways they do this is by offering guided walking tours, exploring the major highlights as well as the city's lesser-known nooks and crannies. Some of the tours they offer, for instance, includes a search for Art Deco skyscrapers, it might include an exploration of hidden spaces that few residents might know about, and a search for lions, griffins, and walruses adorning downtown buildings. Though their tours are probably the most visible events of the foundation, they also offer a wealth of other events, workshops, and community programs. Stacy, thank you for spending some time with us today. Welcome. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit about you and what the Seattle Architecture Foundation is all about. What's its mission? What kinds of activities does it offer to support that mission? Sure. The Seattle Architecture Foundation engages people about architecture and design, um, not just buildings, but urban design, landscape design, everything that makes a, a city an active and vibrant space. In addition to the tours that you talked about, we are offering programs for youth and families, programs that introduce kids to design thinking and help start conversations about urban living at an early age. We're also doing a lecture series, so we try to engage people in conversations about architecture and design in our city. We're kind of in the middle of that right now. We've done things like urban planning around business campuses, because that's kind of a hot topic in Seattle right now. And we're also exploring some neighborhood issues as well through that. Uh, lecture series. And we also do a number of community events. They vary throughout the year, but they might be looking at exclusive spaces throughout Seattle. Um, We also have two exhibits a year. Um, We have one coming up in the fall. It's all about architectural models so the public can get an inside look at how designers do their work. How did you end up being the executive director of the Seattle Architecture Foundation? I mean, what what path in life led you to to this? It's a good question. (laughs) I've spent uh, my whole my whole life, my career in the nonprofit sector, um, and I'm a newish resident to Seattle. I moved here about 12 years ago. Oh, and I should mention, um, my husband is an architect, so he sort of in- introduced me to architecture when we were living in Chicago, which is a pretty amazing um, architecture city. But when I was looking for a new opportunity, a um, new job, I was really looking for something that would connect me to the city because at the time I had only been in the city for about seven years. So I wanted a job that I could walk to that I didn't have to drive to, but also just something that put me at the heart of what was happening in our city. So I really just felt like it was my city. Um, so this was sort of the perfect job for me. And as I thought more and more about it, I, I had spent most of my career working on behalf of you know people you know, in health and human services. I thought, wow, is architecture as you know as important as all these things? Um, does it make a difference in people's lives? And I, as I thought about it, it was pretty quick. But I said, of course it does. What's more important than the places where we live and work and play? They affect our health. They affect our well-being. So there is quite an impact on our lives. Um, the architecture and design that's around us impacts us quite a bit. So for me, I felt like it was a great opportunity to, to fit all these things I was looking for into my life into a job. So I'm lucky that I was able to find it. And some of the the tours you offer, they're not just um, tourist tours, right? A lot of residents of Seattle like those tours as well. Can you talk about the nature of those tours? What are some examples of the most popular ones and the most unusual ones? Sure. We are offering about 13 different tours a year. Um, and they run on a rotating schedule. Our tours really are geared towards a local audience, although, of course, visitors attend. Um, about 70% of our attendees are 
locals. We run probably our most popular tours are our downtown tours. Um, one is, of course, the greatest hits tour, which covers iconic buildings such as the Seattle Public Library and Smith Tower, and then also our Art Deco tour. A lot of people don't think that Seattle has an Art Deco, but if you look downtown, you'll see quite a few Art Deco skyscrapers um, in our city. I think people also don't expect to find architecture in some of our urban neighborhoods, like the Pike Pine Corridor. And there is quite a bit of history there and some old and new architecture. And we try to give our visitors, you know, a little bit of that history. And so they can better understand the development that's happening and what the future looks like, too. There's a house at the end of that tour. It's a it's a black house and it's like on the top of a hill and it's covered with all this landscape. It's an interesting way to end the tour. It's something I never noticed before, but it's right across from Melrose Market. So if you go on the tour, you'll you'll have to check it out. But it kind of shows you what's still there. (laughs) It's a holdover from another time. And what are some of the most unusual tours or some of the most unusual reactions that people have when they go on a tour and they go, huh, I I never knew XYZ about Seattle? That's exactly what they say. (laughs) There's something for everyone. Um, I think every time someone takes a tour, they're learning several new things about the city, whether it's history, something that's going to be happening tomorrow or something that's happening in the future. We also hope that they learn a way that they can participate in shaping the future of our city too. And how long are they? Do they have to walk around for oodles and oodles of miles, or how does it work logistically? There are about two-hour tours, and it's about two about two miles. Most of them are fairly accessible. Of course, if you're touring a neighborhood like Queen Anne, you're going up and down some stairs. But they're mostly accessible, and they're about two hours. They are walking tours because we want people to get up close to see the details of the building, and that's very hard to do from a bus, uh, especially when you're downtown. And who tends to lead these tours? What type of people are they that that drive other people, or not drive, walk other people around the city and around the neighborhoods? They're an amazing group of people. They're all volunteers that lead our tours, um, and they come to us from a variety of backgrounds. There's a woman that I can think about. She um, told me that she worked downtown all her life. I think she was a paralegal. And she said she looked up as she as she went out for her lunch break, and she always wondered what was happening in those buildings. But she also saw things that she wanted to know more about. So she became a tour guide because of that. Some of the people that lead tours are architects, and they just really want to share their passion and knowledge with other people. I would say they're, what's common is they're all lifelong learners, so they're people that want to learn more, and they're people that really care about their city and want to be ambassadors for their city. What makes downtown Seattle different from other cities that you have visited or, or have lived in? What's what's unique about the Seattle downtown area that, that people should key in on? I can't, I, before living in Seattle, I lived in Chicago. So Chicago's quite a, a bigger, more dense city. Um, I think when I first moved here, I was struck at how clean our city was. It felt very small. And to be honest, it didn't feel really that urban to me. Um, I think over the last 10 years, 12 years, it's changed. Um, It is feeling a little bit more dense, but we don't really have a lot of people living in in our immediate downtown core. So I think that makes it quite different at night. It is a lot quieter than what um, a major urban city might might be like. Um, So that's one thing that to me makes it different. But I do think we have a few standouts of architecture in our downtown core, more contemporary. And actually, that's another thing that struck me when I moved here. The um, Seattle City Hall is actually a pretty, pretty amazing building if you take the time to look at it. But it's this contemporary, really welcoming building that I think speaks a lot for our city's values. And I think some of our newer buildings, they do have that quality about them. Seattle style really does take into effect like the landscape and the views that we have. And I think if you go in and explore that building, you'll find that to be true. 
And I think if I remember correctly, wasn't City Hall the building that had one of the first or early buildings that had a greenery on the rooftop in order to to get rain runoff and and basically have a garden up there? Is yeah, that, I remember correctly. There is a garden up there. Yeah, and it probably was one of the one of those early buildings. I think also in Seattle, we were probably one of the early cities to kind of adopt you know lead certification standards for our downtown buildings. So you find that in pretty much everything new before it became a thing. I think Seattle was doing that. Mm-hmm. One of the things I remember when I moved here 10 years ago walking around was creative ways to capture rainwater and bring it down from the building and then reuse it and recycle it. So mm-hmm. whether it was a condo building or a public building, everybody had their own little creative way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Another thing that strikes me about downtown Seattle, I mean, Seattle is you know a city of seven hills or six, depending on how you, you count. And downtown itself is on a hill, on an incline. So all the buildings are basically stacked up this incline and when you're looking at the at the skyline from the water it's almost as if every individual building can be seen from the water because they're raised like an amphitheater Mm -hmm. so that struck me when i was taking the the elliott bay cruising tour on the boat and i looked at the skyline i could see and distinguish every single individual building cleanly and pristinely that might be changing now because of the tremendous Mm -hmm. uh, development in the past 10 years but that struck me yeah, that's an interesting observation. But the 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 hills and yeah, it creates quite interesting scale um, for our buildings too. I think you're right about that. So the foundation does more than tours. What other type of events and workshops do you do that energize people or or challenge their assumptions? What what are those programs like? Um, I think I'm thinking mostly about our design in depth lectures for adults. But they're, they're really panel discussions, and we'll have professionals and sometimes lay people, but people, um, sometimes users of a space, but usually a panel um, convenes around an issue. So it could be housing, for example. We might focus on design, affordability, maybe development, you know, some different issues about it. And, and we'll have each speaker usually kind of share their point of view, um, and then we create time for dialogue among the speakers and among the audience, too. Um, we, we're not um, usually there to solve problems or issues, but really to make people aware of those issues and talk about possible solutions. And it seems to go beyond downtown. We've been talking a lot about downtown, but I looked mm-hmm. at your website and the programs, and it looks like you go out to the neighborhoods as well in Seattle. What's the discussion in, in, at the neighborhood venues? What's that about? A couple of years ago, we did do a neighborhood series. It was all about neighborhoods, and it was really interesting. Um, we were trying to explore like the past, present, and future of each neighborhood, and we looked at neighborhoods as far south as Georgetown and north as Ballard, so still pretty urban neighborhoods going through quite a bit of development. And this was, I think, two or three years ago. Um, but we tried to also pull out what was unique about these neighborhoods. In Ballard, for example, we had the talk at a brewery um, because Ballard is kind of known for their their breweries um, right now. So we talked about that and why that culture is springing up in Ballard um, and how this, the land use and the structure of the buildings really contributes to that. It was in a brewery that I think is gone now. <laughs> we also had someone from um, the city kind of talk about the the planning aspect of that and why it's a good place for breweries. Um, we had a historian from the Ballard Historical Society talk about the history of breweries in the neighborhood. And, and it's kind of funny because things come full circle. So there was this history of, you know, of drinking and, you know, Ballard was kind of a fishing 
town or fishing industry was big there. So there was kind of that cultural reference. And then now today, it's known for its brewery. So I think when you look at history of, you know, the built environment, there's more to it than just why a building got built. There's usually quite a bit of cultural history there as well. So I think in each neighborhood, we learned something new that was similar to that. And this coming year, we are doing something. We're looking at north and south neighborhoods because we kind of tend to explore the ones closer in. But similar, like looking at sort of Main Street communities. So these urban downtown cores, how they're contributing to economic you know, vibrancy in their neighborhoods, what makes that happen. And so we're looking at Columbia City and Greenwood. Um, but that's also part of kind of a larger conversation. We're, having, we're launching an exhibit um, in late April as well on Main Streets and how communities can lead the design around those efforts. Main Streets is actually kind of a part of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. It's a movement. There's different tenets, like things like design, you know, economics and arts and culture, but it, it's kind of a rural movement, but um, it also applies to urban environments as well. If you look at a, I think Yakima is one of the, the main streets. It's kind of a quiet downtown, but it's surrounded by it's agriculture, but now a lot of wineries and breweries and things like that. I think that's one of the largest growers of hops too. Mm. Um, so there's a lot happening there. They recently revitalized their downtown and they've added some art and culture and, you know, just some different activities to keep people there. And I think it's contributed to quite a bit of economic growth for the city. There's also a nearby community called Titan, um, which has also done something similar, but not through a Main Streets program, but through an NEA R-Town grant. From my understanding, it's about, you know, taking the assets of the community, you know, their arts and cultural history, but also that they have cidery there as well. So... Um, so that exhibit's really looking at how these small communities, how individuals can create revitalization in these small communities and what does it take, um, what are the drivers, um, and what are the results. And so we're creating an exhibit around that and then looking at some neighborhoods in our own region as well as also around the country to provide mm-hmm. examples. And one you mentioned in particular that piques my interest was Georgetown because mm-hmm. um, Georgetown, it, it still has a turn of the century, 19th into 20th century and mid 20th century aesthetic to it, sort of a detritus of industrial mm-hmm. presence that used to be there as well as saloons red brick buildings and it really has a, a vibrant neighborhood local residents as well as local businesses for the most part and i think everybody in seattle is a little afraid that that neighborhood eventually might might turn and become you know more nationalized <laughs> there's always fear about that i'm curious about you had a program in georgetown mm-hmm. as well what was that about what were the topics there yeah, we I remember a little bit. We had it was at the Georgetown Ballroom, so a great space down there. They host a lot of events. We worked with the chamber to kind of find the right business leaders. Um and we had um you know, we had Manny from uh, Manny's Brewery there, Fran from Fran's Chocolates, and then we had um a developer, I can't remember his name, but someone who owned a number of um residential properties in the area. And he was super interesting because I think his role was really trying to keep some of those properties affordable because his feeling was you have a lot of artists in the community and you want to keep them there. He did his best, I think, to keep things affordable. I think there was also the woman who organized the Georgetown Trailer Park that they have every weekend. But you're creating something that that's unique that people want to come to. So it brings out the local artists and residents on a regular basis to participate, but also is unique. And it's bringing people from outside the community as well, which contributes to the economic viability of the community and the residents. I think the one question that came up that was interesting was about transportation. It's a neighborhood that's pretty hard to access. There's not really grocery stores there, unless there are new ones that I'm not aware of. But it's kind of a food desert. Mm -hmm. There's restaurants and there's entertainment. 
it's kind of hard to get in and out. It's hard for families to live there. And no one really had an answer. Um, and I, I haven't seen that the city's addressing that through any of their, their transportation plans. Um, and I, I kind of got the feeling that maybe that was a way they were keeping it affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what they said, but that's kind of what I felt. Well, if you keep it isolated, then then that's how you sort of keep it affordable, which, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think you come away with sort of mixed feelings on what, what that means for a community. I think communities tend to grow because families move in and, you know, kids grow up there and then they, they move there. So so I don't know what the future for that community is. Um, maybe, it'll, maybe it'll just stay the way it is because it's, it's not going to change. <laughs> yeah, and, and it is geographically in an interesting place. It's sort of nestled next to Boeing Field, so a giant runway basically abuts it on one side and then there's interstate five on the other side and then a railroad system on another and a whole bunch of warehouses so you're right it is a very uh isolated peninsula in the middle of southern seattle and it will remain probably isolated for for a while and to your point that might be a good thing in the sense that it conserves its character but there's also the other side of the coin which is how is it going to grow and evolve as time goes by um let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the mission of the foundation and, and particularly a couple of phrases that are on your website and, and you mentioned one today. What does architecture literacy mean and why is it an important skill or virtue to have? And maybe related to that, you mentioned design thinking. Mm-hmm. Why is it important for people to be aware of architectural details, architectural history and, and the built environment around them? When we're in a city like Seattle, there are opportunities for the public to get involved. People may disagree or agree to what extent we actually can make a difference. But we do have, you know, these opportunities to go to design review meetings, see what's happening, share our thoughts and opinions. At the foundation, we want to make sure people understand so they when they go to these meetings, they can actually talk in an educated way about what's in their their neighborhood. I think we want people to understand the history of their neighborhood and of the city. I think sometimes when you look back, you get these important lessons that help you look forward in a thoughtful way. On some of our tours, we'll talk about a building and we might say, this is a building that the public really didn't like when it got built. We might talk about how that happened and why. Maybe we could avoid that in the future if we do X, Y, and Z. So I think um, we don't propose, you know, one style or one building or one mode is better than another, but just we want to educate people just about the about architecture and design, what makes a healthy community, um, what elements, you know, create a vibrant downtown or a vibrant neighborhood so that when they're looking at their own community, they can kind of take that information and thoughtfully express it, you know, at a neighborhood meeting or mm-hmm. wherever they might have the opportunity. I think a metaphor I use often, <laughs> this is going to sound a little weird, is that human beings are like grapes. And just as winemakers care about the terroir associated with a grape, is it at the right side of the hill? Is it the right climate? Is it the right environment? Are they getting the right wind patterns? People live encrusted in, in the physical built space. So if day by day you walk through the community and the community is not a walkable community, it's not an interesting community, maybe there's just too many glass office buildings but no street life in it, eventually, day after day, year after year of that, your senses are going to become somewhat dulled as a result of that. So to really understand the build environment around you, what makes a a design choice of a building or a place be exciting to you, add value to your life, and just have that awareness is really important. So you can go to those design reviews and then foresee into the future if they do this in my community what kind of impact will it have on my psychology as i walk around the neighborhood so when when i look at a design literacy architectural literacy that's what i think about it's what do i want 
my surrounding to look like and my terroir around me as as I walk through the built environment and what kind of life do I want to lead? What kind of buildings do I want around me? There was one woman, she was an older woman, and I think she lived in Bellevue most of her life. And she started coming to our, our tours. She probably went to most of them in, in a year. And then she started coming to our lectures. And she came to a lecture in South Lake Union. And one of the speakers was just talking about the scale of buildings and that how that greatly affects us as pedestrians and why it's important in the landscape as well. And just how we move through the city. And she then went to Europe later that year and came back. And she told me that she she saw so much, so many things that were missing in the States and in Seattle. But she she really credited her awareness. She, she just had this heightened awareness because she had been to our programs and she'd been hearing about all this stuff. And so when she went to Europe, she was just really aware of, of everything that they do that, that maybe she doesn't see here. But she sort of came back. Um, wanting to get more involved. But I think that awareness is really important because if we're not aware, you know, we're not enjoying it to its fullest and we're not really making change to make it better. Mm -hmm. I think it reminds me of when I went to a design review board, I think one of the the topics that was often discussed was zoning laws in the Seattle city and how tall can buildings go. And what a lot of uh, developers would say is if you don't raise the height then it's likely that the buildings that are going to happen in a block are, are what are called bread boxes, which take the whole block, take about six stories, and the street life might not be as vibrant because they need to maximize the amount of space if they only are given certain height. Whereas if a certain height is allowed more height, then the building doesn't have to take the whole block. It can be a skinnier building, and there could be more green space and more activation. So it's really interesting. I, I never quite thought until I heard this debate that height zoning uh, allowing more height isn't necessarily a bad thing by default because it allows more flexibility at the street level rather than creating this behemoth that takes a whole block. So that's a kind of design and, and architectural literacy moment that I had a few years ago. Yeah, that's a really good one. Actually, I had a similar, kind of a similar moment too, where I, I thought, oh yeah, I don't want these tall buildings either. But then as I learned a little bit more about, you know, when you have taller buildings, you're creating increased density, which helps affordability if it's residential. But yes, you can create better spaces at the ground level, which is what most of us appreciate and, and enjoy if we are able to do that. And you can only do that if you let the developers go just a little bit taller. I mean, we all have to, we all have to benefit. And I think in Seattle, I feel like there's a sensitivity to that right now amongst some of our developers and architects to create those better better spaces at the ground level. And I've seen, I feel like I've seen a lot of changes in just the last three years in kind of that mindset. Do you think that architectural consciousness and design literacy is eroding over time as we become more of a digital society, always with our heads down, noses pointing at our small screens in our hands? I mean, what are the consequences of, of this erosion, you know, walking around looking at our screen rather than heads up and looking around like a tourist, even in our own city. I was thinking about that a little bit more um, in the context of children um, and how children are probably not noticing things at all. And I think it's really important for kids, for that next generation to really understand um, what's happening today because it is their, you know, their future, their their city, and there's a lot happening now that's going to affect their future. Going a little bit back to the foundation too, we run some programs for young kids and also teenagers We've run some programs in some lower income neighborhoods as well because we really want kids to understand that they have a voice in their in the future of their neighborhood or that they should or how can they be empowered to have have that voice. But these kids are they know what's happening in their community. When we talk about gentrification, they kind of understand 
what's happening in their community. They see their neighbors moving away. They see their businesses moving away. They're not quite sure what to do about it. Um, A lot of the programs that we're focused on, we really look at architecture through the lens of design. And so we're really talking about how design can solve these social issues. Um, And we're building that literacy for kids at a young age so that maybe some of these kids might become architects. Maybe some of them will just get involved in their communities and make something different happen. But if nothing else, at least they're kind of understanding the connection between housing and homelessness and design. And I think those are really important lessons. Um, If you've learned them as a kid, hopefully they'll stick with you as an adult. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't have these screens. And now I have these screens and I catch myself sometimes on my way to work thinking, I have been looking at my screen for the past mile. Put away the screen. Look up. Even though you've seen these buildings 365 times in the past 365 days, just be a tourist in your Mm -hmm. own town. Look up. Um, What are some of the factors that make a great built environment, whether we're talking about specific buildings, public spaces, streets? When people say that's a great built environment or a great space, what are some of the features that you think are part of those? Sometimes I think it's kind of like simple things like that really embrace how we live, work, and play. (laughs) And so how do we live day to day? Do we have spaces that promote, you know, healthy living for us? Do they create walkability? You talked about seeing what's around you. Are we enjoying our time that we spend, you know, walking to and from work each day? Do they, do the built environment include spaces for us to just hang out and relax and unwind? Do we have parks? Do we have benches? Do we have little nooks and crannies that give us that private space and also give us space that we can spend with other people, you know, engaging in conversation? Is our work close enough to our house that we can walk we don't have to sit in traffic every day to me if I have to sit in traffic that like ruins my day so um, fortunately for me I have a lifestyle that I don't have to sit in traffic very often but I think those kinds of elements are really important and interesting spaces too that incorporate art into them as well I think I like it when there's you know a little whimsy added to my day some surprise if I see a new piece of public art or even sometimes it's not even art, but it might be a building material that's interesting. You look at it every day and it changes when you walk by. Maybe when it's wet, it's very different than when it's sunny. So I think elements like that improve just my daily experience, my daily walk. I sometimes take a different route. I walk a lot to work or part of the way at least, and I take slightly different routes. So I see different things all the time. That reminds me of the Pioneer Square area when I would walk it, I don't know, five, six years ago, I would always walk down the main arteries to get where I needed to go, whether it was a stadium or a restaurant or what have you. But in the past, must be a year or two, the alleyways in Pioneer Square have just had art placed in the alleyways, flower arrangements, restaurants that have front-facing real estate on the main streets have open patios in the alleyways. So the alleyways that used to be... (laughs) places that you might fear and might worry about your, your, your sanitary health as you walk through it now have become just what people say are activated by all this activity, which raises an interesting question. I always have, I have a philosopher's background and whenever there's a concept or a word that people use a lot and use as a shorthand, I always feel the need to, to analyze and unpack that word. So one of the words I hear used over and over in architecture and urban planning circles is activation. And it tends to be used when trying to convince folks that the proposed project will bring additional life or energy to a specific place. It's one of those words that I think needs unpacking. What does activation mean in a tangible space when an architect or an urban planner says, I'm bringing this building, I'm bringing this space to you, and the space will be activated? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's kind of a, it has been a new word we're hearing a lot of in the last few years. Um, I think it to me, it just I mean, it means what it is, <laughs> what it says, but it really is um, adding that vibrancy bringing people off into a space that maybe there weren't any before. It sometimes means changing the traditional use of the space, like you mentioned an alleyway, where you just, an alleyway is not a normally somewhere we want to walk through. There's usually garbage. Sometimes you can't even drive through it. Some of the ones in Pioneer Square are a little bit tricky. <laughs> but um, I think what they're, you know, what they're doing is they're transforming that space. They're saying the alleyway is a throughway. It's just like a sidewalk. By doing that, by changing the, the space and activating it, adding the public art, creating the, the doors that, you know, open up into the alley, you're creating safety, you know, it's eyes on the street. You're also giving, um, I believe, some business owners maybe a lower cost way to rent a space. They may not be able to afford a storefront space in a brand new building, but maybe the alleyway space is perfect for them. So I think those are some ways what you call activating. You're just creating life where there wasn't before. I think when you look at two examples that are pretty obvious right now, but in Pioneer Square and Occidental Park, they've added a lot of chairs and they've got food trucks there and all kinds of things happening on the weekend. It feels like a different space, feels safer, feels like a place I want to be in, I want to go to. Um, the same thing in Westlake Park. Over the last two summers, they've added similar features. They've got entertainment there. They've got some park-like structures for kids. Um, it feels safer. I used to go around the other block on my way home, and now I actually walk through it most of the time. There's something, hap- you know, something happening. People are smiling and having a good time instead of causing trouble and making everyone feel uncomfortable. So I think that's what activating the space is. I think sometimes it means actually creating activity where there was none, but sometimes it might just be, and that's actual programming of space. It includes maintenance as well, I, I think. But it could also just be transforming with landscape and benches and making a softer space in a space where there's like nothing there, um, just changing the experience. Mm-hmm. And it is a, a fine balance to achieve it. It's not an easy thing to do to suddenly activate a space I'm thinking of. And I think this is actually a program you guys had recently or are having recently about corporate campuses or business campuses in an urban environment. And I've seen many uh, new ones in, in downtown Seattle where a concrete plaza is populated with metal chairs and metal tables, which are used during the lunchtime at work. But then later during the day when everybody leaves, uh, just become tumbleweed. So it's really difficult to find how does activation happen with the right balance and where does adding these places that help people to have lunch in the middle of the day, but then becomes an abandoned area in the middle of the night for the rest of the neighborhood. It really is a, a fine balance to try to find how to activate a space pretty well. I think one of the ways communities can do it and do it really well is really to engage their residents in that process. And I think some some groups have done that. I know in the Chinatown International District, they're doing a similar project there. And, you know, they've got a, a group, you know, some different groups that are formed to think about what what do we want our neighborhood to be and what kinds of activities do we want. And, you know, it often involves like one-time festivals and events, but kind of a regular schedule of events. It creates that ownership in your community as well. So I do think that community engagement aspect is pretty important if you want those spaces to stay active, you know. Yeah, so it's not just yeah. creating an empty stage and all mm-hmm. the furniture in the stage, get the actors involved and get programming and regularity of events involved. So so it's not just, here, I created a proscenium for you. I have activated you. It, it needs a little, a little more. We've been talking a lot about large structures or exterior places, and let's go inside what are some of the features that make for a great interior spaces, maybe, maybe a workspace or a public interior space? 
I think in in my opinion, it's it's probably pretty similar. Um, but you want those spaces where you can, you know, have quiet time. Like if you're in a workspace, you know, we have introverts and extroverts and everybody likes different spaces. But to kind of create spaces for both people, we're probably all used to the open floor plans by now. And I know that's often hard <laughs> for, for some people. So I think you have to create those small private spaces as well as large spaces. But you still want to use materials that are soft, you know, that dampen sound to some extent, that make people feel warm and comfortable. You want to have the right lighting so, you know, you don't feel like you're you're exposed all the time. You want to have um, adjustable features if you can, have, your, you know, adjustable lighting and things that make you feel, you know, comfortable in your space. It's difficult because uh, open workspaces have been all the rage for at least maybe 10 years again. It's, it's like a pendulum comes back and forth. And I, I actually work in an open workspace. And at first I thought it was great because there's a flow of information. The lack of walls is analogous to a lack of politics and secrecy goes down. But at the same time, to your point, introverts and extroverts and the need to to be heads down and not be interrupted and not have you know foosball tables banging in the corner when you're trying to concentrate it, it really is a a challenge so a mixed space that allows for that openness and that fluidity of communication and places where you can go duck in like a gopher and just burrow down and do your work and, and not be disturbed is really important and yeah I, i've experienced that personally the need for that in an open workspace i think if you look at some of the um not to name names but some of the the newer corporate developments they have done a really nice job of that if you go inside you'll they do have the foosball table room and the art room and they'll have the lunch you know the different lunch rooms but they'll also have quiet seating as well and i do think companies that have the opportunity to custom design their space they they really do think a lot about that how their employees are productive and creative at the same time and they incorporate that into their their offices these days they have to compete with uh, working from home so the the experience of going to the office has to be energizing and has to be amazing because you know you can telecommute now more and more so sometimes when you have to go into work and collaborate the space better be as well maybe not as exciting as home depending on your home uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some movements and trends um, in architecture what are some key movements that people should know when it comes to architecture urban planning i mean i'll, I'll bring one up the the new urbanist movement people often refer to jane jacobs and richard florida talking about the resurgence of cities and not just the resurgence of cities, but cities that have walkability, that have spaces that are activated and make sense for people who are living there and not just, you know, large buildings that dwarf them, a sense of transportation that is right fitted and not necessarily relying on cars. It seems like at least, you know, when I was young, everybody was going out to the suburbs. Now it seems everybody's coming back to the cities and cities are getting a resurgence, not just in a demographic way but in a political way as well is that a fair trend the the resurgence of city life i think yeah i think so i mean i think like every trend um there's a cycle it seems like it kind of goes hand in hand like there's affordability um there's people are looking for different you know different things at different times i think being in the city if if you you know you work in the city you want to reduce your time uh, in transit going back and forth uh, you know the hour commute a day is not desirable families want to move back to the city because there's more for families although i think in a city like seattle we do struggle with that we don't really have a lot of affordable family housing here and our schools probably aren't where they need to be to support uh, more and more families here, or, or I guess if the families come, the schools will change, the parks will change. But I think that people are looking for the quality of life that that a city has can offer. 
Yeah, there are definite benefits to living in cities with more density, you know, well-planned transit, attractive public spaces. However, it also seems to be that another trend that accompanies that urbanization is is that rising cost of living associated with city living. You know, we could talk about Seattle, but there's also San Francisco, Denver, and, you know, pick your your favorite city where, where just costs are going high as people are moving in. And often those cities that are showing the promise of a better urban future are saddled with, with affordability problems. And do you have any ideas how we can balance that <laughs> affordability and diversity? Yeah, I look, look to the architects and developers for that. But I think, no, it's also, um, I think it it's a, probably involves or, or requires a shift in mindset from from us, the you know, whoever's the inhabitants. Um, what do we need in our life? And, you know, what do we want? I think if you're going to move from the suburbs to the city, if you're a, you know, a four-person household, you know, a family, two adults and two kids, you can't probably have two cars anymore. So you have to kind of get rid of some of those those expenses and realize the benefits of other, like you're going to save money because you're going to have accessible transit. Um, your house might be smaller. You might not have a full yard, but you might have a park. So I think really just figuring out how to cut back on square footage and, and, and use your space better. One time I was talking to a friend and we were talking about they lived in a studio and, you know, in a, in a pretty hip neighborhood in Chicago. It was a small space. It wasn't fancy. I said, what do you do when friends come over? And they said, well, I look at my whole neighborhood as my living room. And that's a really good way to think about it, that you're not going to just stay inside all the time and invite people over and have large dinner parties. You're going to do things in your neighborhood. Um, you're going to use your your space differently. And I think that does require a shift in mindset. We have a few friends that um, have kids and they live in neighborhoods like Capitol Hill and South Lake Union. And you see them out. You see them out all the time. Um, in the summers, they seem to make the rounds, you know, to, to Mohai, to the park, to, to Seattle Center, to the farmer's markets. And you see them out and about. And I think that's, you know, that's something that people need to think about. You don't have to have your kid and all their stuff in the house. You can actually do things. There's a lot more available to you. All my, all our friends with kids, they have memberships to all the museums and they're doing things. Their kids are probably getting, you know, a much more culturally rich life than I had growing up in the suburbs. They're seeing things, they're being exposed a lot more. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about a friend or an acquaintance that went to Europe and then came back and noticed some differences. I think what I've noticed as well, and I'm overgeneralizing, but it's it's more often true in European cities than it is in U.S. cities, where you can have that smaller living space because you can go out into the public areas and it's walkable and it's not the the bread box arrangement of, you know, corporate density and it's very difficult to find an, an interesting place to just be and linger. Or if you find an interesting place to be and linger, it's not designed to linger. I mean, let's think about Starbucks it's not really designed to linger there for four hours with your friends and talk and, and be. It's more about Wi-Fi and putting on your headphones and getting your coffee and moving on. If we're going to minimize our, our living space and rely on going out in public and using public spaces, it almost seems like our whole culture and our whole economy has to, has to shift as well in order to allow for that minimalism to occur. It's more difficult to downsize and be a minimalist in the United States if you can't go out into public and find those places where you can play as easily or as cheaply, actually, mm -hmm. as it is in some European spots. And, you know, speaking of small spaces, something I've been noticing more and more in Seattle and, and other cities is the surge of what are often called micro apartments, or sometimes they're called apodments. 
And these are usually one-room living spaces that are configured with modular furniture and tools that have multi-purposes. And these spaces usually are under 400 square feet, though a good share of them I was looking at listings yesterday are around 150 square feet. And, you know, I'm all for conscientious uh, usage of space and stuff that one really needs in adopting a minimalist lifestyle. But there is something about this trend that feels less about being conscientious to me and more opportunistic. It's, hey, let's lease out less space for comparable rent per square footage. Maybe it's just me. I, you know, I thought I was amazing living in, in under a thousand square feet, but I look at some folks that can do it with 450 or even 150. And, and I don't know that I'm impressed as much as wondering if, if that's just the restrainment of, of life. I don't know. Do you think 150 square feet is, is acceptable? I mean, for me personally, I it it's not what I would want the way I would want to live, and I don't have a big house in, in the you know I don't have a big mansion, <laughs> you know. I think if we need to create things that are more affordable for people, maybe that is one way to go. Although I will admit I've seen some of those um, listed for much higher than what I would expect, and to me that feels a little unfair. But I'm thinking, you know, that like it's kind of like dorm life. So if students are people that are kind of looking for their in transition, looking for their next spot or looking for that kind of a place, it's more transient housing. I think that's a good option. And maybe I hope it's less it's more cost effective than living in a hotel. But some of those spaces do have public spaces. So you're losing, you know, you don't have your own kitchen, but you have a shared kitchen. I don't know how you fit a restroom in 150 square feet. I don't know if those are shared. Um, although I guess I've seen in some um, Japan and China and hotels, they'll have a very small space like that and the shower and the toilet like are in the same space. Um, so I'm not sure if we're designing that efficiently here in the States or not. But I guess I also think of the tiny houses too. And there's a lot of debate on that and people have different opinions I guess sometimes I think that we talk about the tent communities too and how some people want those and they they are effective. But I I have to say as a person, I feel like we can do better to house people in different environments. Um, The tiny house situation is interesting because it is somewhat cost effective, but it also takes up space. So if you're, you know, really trying to be efficient, you need a little more density. So those taller buildings we talked about before might serve you well. I've also this is just thinking about some friends that have lived in some mixed income communities in other cities. Um, I think sometimes when you're in a, a, you know, a larger community with other people, different types of people, it's a more diverse community. Sometimes if you, you know, you're in a low income and, a, and then a market rate uh, building where everyone's coexisting, um, you know, maybe there's a family with children that don't have a father at home and there's a, a neighbor above and maybe they're going to mentor that, that ch- those children and, you know, help them learn how to use the computer or things like that. And I think so I think there's some benefits to the those higher rise different kinds of developments other than these apartments, you know, mm-hmm. that were trying to be affordable. So, I guess I love to see all kinds of people mixed in in different sorts of developments that creates a better quality of life for everybody. It might be a generational thing for me. The generation before me needed I'm just going to make stuff up 2500 square feet. My generation is okay with 1000 square feet and 450 square feet might feel uncomfortable to me, but maybe, you know, new generations and how they interact with public spaces and their own space and what they expect is is different. I often think about times when, let's say I would go to camp and I had a very constrained living space and I got used to it and it seemed to 
over time just psychologically expand. The amount of space I could I had was the same, but I would do okay after getting used to it and finding different uses for it. So maybe I need to just cool my jets and, and relax about the apartments because some people need it, find it, that it fulfills their needs and you know, go yeah. forth and prosper. Maybe we should do like psychological studies to see how to see how they do. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe long term tracking. Yeah. Right, we were missing something. <laughs> so I think this this particular episode might come out late February. So I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about what the foundation has in store. Let's say in March and April that you might want to share with folks as if they listen to this episode. Sure. Well, our tour season will kick off into full swing in in late April. So it's a it's a good time to kind of check out our website and see what we have to offer. Um, we also have an exhibit opening in uh, the very end of April as well, the Main Streets of America. That's something to definitely check out. And in uh, mid-September, our annual model exhibit will open up as well. So I encourage people to check that out. What is it, the annual? The annual model exhibit, so architectural models on display from local firms, but they're mm-hmm. doing work globally often, so you can kind of see what's happening Architects use models to communicate. They're using digital models, physical models, 3D models now. Mm. So you can kind of see all of that and and, um, really understand how that design process happens. Um, And then in addition to the models, we usually do some programming um, around the exhibit as well. And could you let people know where they could go online in order to learn more about the Seattle Architecture Foundation or or share ways they could learn more about the foundation in general? Sure. Our website is seattlearchitecture.org. We're a nonprofit. And you can also visit visit us at the Center for Architecture and Design, which is located at 1010 Western. And that space is free and open to the public. And the Center for Architecture and Design, is that a separate organization or it's a partner organization? What's the relationship between the two? Sure. It's um, not its own organization, but it is a space. Um, the space is co it's shared by um, Seattle Architecture Foundation, AIA Seattle, which is the American Institute of Architects and Design in Public, the group that runs the design festival and AI Washington Council, which is a, um, they lobby for the profession. So we're all co-located in the same space. And by working together, we can kind of afford to have a shared public space up in the front, which provides the free exhibits, space for lectures and other events. That's great. Stacy. thank you so much for being here. Now that I heard about the model exhibit, I might have to go there because as a kid, I used to do my own fake cities and fake subway lines with magic markers. So I'm going to have to go look at that exhibit. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io, where more podcasts, videos, and written content live. On that site, you will find a corresponding article for this episode, where you can find more information about the Seattle Architecture Foundation and links to additional information about urbanism, the design of cities, and more. And of course, You can always subscribe and receive the latest, greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place.